this week. I drank sort of increasingly more throughout my 20s and 30s um, until, you know, my early 30s, I realized that I had a pretty substantial problem. And so I made the decision uh, that I needed to stop drinking and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and one of their, you know, one of their tenets, one of their steps is to believe in a power greater than yourself, um, which was like a very new thing for me, right? <laughs> when James Hampton stepped into his first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting as an atheist, being asked to find a higher power didn't come naturally. But he soon discovered an incredible sense of calm in giving over his fears and doubts to something greater than himself. Now four years sober, James and I talk about the ease he's found in sitting with discomfort and the faith he's grown in the power of prayer. And he reflects on his work as a high school drama teacher and the faith it gives him in the goodness of humanity. Because how do you handle challenge when you've let go of the one thing you've used to cope? You find a little faith. I'm Maren Smith, and this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario. And James Hampton lives on Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Ojibwe Chippewa, and Wendat territory in Toronto, Ontario. For context, I want to just also reference the fact that we are in the middle of the COVID-19 outbreak. So we're having this conversation in different circumstances than we would normally be. So in all of that, what is giving you hope right now? And do you have a story in your life right now that uh, reminded you of your sense of faith or hope? Yeah, I was thinking about these questions um, earlier today, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this conversation might be totally different tomorrow or yesterday or today. Everything is evolving so rapidly. Um, I think working with, with youth, I am talking to them about sort of like their feelings about what's happening in the world, not just amid COVID-19, but uh, more broadly, I see things really, really gradually changing um, mm. and, and changing, I think for the better. So uh, I've just, uh, I have a decade of teaching under my belt and I'm teaching drama and I'm working with teenagers and theatrical topics and looking at how we can explore social issues in a theatrical context. And the, the impetus is coming more and more from the young people to do that. Huh. Um, we're having to less think about the buy-in to get kids invested in these topics. And it's becoming more about like, we want to do a show about this. So like, Last year, my my school, a, a student had written a show about the refugee crisis, and like they wanted to do that, and we went um, to the provincial level of a the National Theater School Drama Festival, and like, a, you know, all of the shows were like about these really pressing social issues and how our youth are affected, and that's giving me so much hope. Right, it's just every year things are a little bit like softer, 
in terms of of like the the love that people have for each other, I think, and young people. So that is something that gives me hope on a daily basis. Do you, if you look back on like when you were the same age as your students, did you feel that same way about issues, or was it? Do you think there's a difference because people are more exposed to like news and social media, or what do you think is the difference? Yeah, I don't know if we had the same exposure to it. Um, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, I certainly remember having kind of a keen awareness of social inequity and injustice in the community that I grew up in, but not maybe any sense that I as a 16 year old could do anything about it, Mm. Uh, you know? And so we had an awareness and we tried to reflect that in our work, but there certainly wasn't um, maybe a belief that that could exist beyond ourselves. So yeah. like, that's, that's really interesting, right? To see, because they can communicate globally, they have more faith in an ability to change things, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's the positive side of like the interconnectivity, social media yes. generation that then we talk a lot about the negatives, but there is like a, For sure. a positive of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely a double-edged sword. I mean, there's also, I think, and I see with, I mean, not just young people, but people of my age, um, I mean, there's a, there's a mental toll that the constant exposure to is so much trauma takes and that's certainly not to, um, make that trauma my own or make it about myself, but it is hard to live in a world where we are hearing about devastating things happening all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's that second degree of trauma by association, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't, I mean, I don't, that didn't exist the same way. I don't think without. I mean, I had, didn't get the internet until I was like in my twenties, kind of thing, right? Like, uh, so you didn't have that access to it. So yeah, totally. Yeah. So maybe staying then with this this train of like talking about yourself when you were younger. What was mm. what was your life like growing up? What were you taught about the world? What were you taught about faith and hope? So my grandmother was a Protestant immigrant from Ireland um, and she immigrated to Canada when she was four. And uh, we were raised like we were, I was baptized Protestant and went to, you know, Sunday school and until I don't, I don't remember what age and, but certainly what kind of dominated, I think the worldview I was brought up in was like the Protestant work ethic. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if you work hard, good things will happen to you. Right. And if, bad things happen to someone, they probably aren't working hard enough. And that's in itself a sort of, um, a sort of faith, right? You're putting your faith in, if you do these things, something will follow. And that's sort of the, you know, from, the, from a Christian perspective, that the afterlife, if you are a good person, good things happen to you later on. And so that kind of dominated my upbringing. And I think in a way it still does. I mean, it's in our society in some ways is built on that belief, right? And there's a lot of unfortunate belief that people that are in a, kind of a have not situation must not be working very hard, which we know, or I believe is certainly untrue and not true, but, um, but that kind of dominated the, the upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did that like affect what you did as a kid or how you or as a young person? How did you approach your life or. I think it cultivated a sense of, or like perfectionism in a way um, with a lot of anxiety around falling short or, or being worried that people thought I was falling short or whatever my expectation of falling short for myself was. I mean, um, you know, I remember my, uh, 
it's, this was a joke, but it also is very real. I think for a lot of people, you get 99% on a test. And instead of your parents saying, great job, they say, well, why, what happened to that 1% kind of thing? Right. Um, and so I think a lot of, you know, there's a striving and a motivation that can come along with that, but there's also a lot of like critical inner voice that can come along with that as well. Right. So I worked really hard. And also, I mean, as a child in elementary school or middle school or whatever, you're not the most likable person when you're only ever going <laughs> to, you know what I mean? Like, um, and so there's that sort of, you don't care about uh, games or sports at recess. You want to do your homework at recess and get extra marks and all that stuff. So there's a, a social impact as well for that kind of ambition, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm curious as to how that played out for you. Can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, it kind of worked, you know, uh, I don't want to glorify it, but it, it, it did work out in a way that when I got to university, I, I kind of took those principles and applied them to trying to be social. <laughs> so I, I ran for the student union and got involved in student government and got involved in theater work and, and put all of my efforts into that at the expense of my academics, but ended up sort of um, developing a very comfortable life for a 21 year old. Um, you know, I, I graduated a little bit later as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I did. And then I worked really hard. I got into, went to teacher's college and then I, covered maternity leaves and teaching and did six extracurriculars a year. And then that got me a permanent job and all those things kind of worked out. And then, uh, but I also am unable to sort of ignore the role of um, being a white male may have like played in that as well, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for that. I was like a privilege. I grew up in like a middle to upper class home, right? Two parents, two kids, two cars. (laughs) Right went to university, went to like a graduate program, got a job in like a government institution, right? I mean, there are certain things that I definitely had advantages because of my, the position I was born into. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So was there, cause you said that you attended church and stuff. What was the, mm-hmm. the spiritual doctrine that you also were growing up with? Was that actually an active part of your life or how did you, how did you navigate that? It's really interesting. I mean, my my grandmother like was a, a devout Protestant, and she was the one that sort of insisted my my sibling and I were baptized. And my parents said we will take them to element, uh, sorry, Sunday school or church as long as they want to go. And once they can give us good reasons why they don't want to go, then we're not going to make them go. Um, and I think for me, I was like five or six when I talked about not wanting to go, and so. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't remember what reasons I gave that would have been compelling <laughs> enough, but um, I, 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 my, I know that my parents were not as interested in it as my, my grandmother was for me, right? So I don't think it took too much persuasion. But we, we prayed every night before dinner, mm-hmm. mostly in a non-Christian context, although it was to like a Christian God, but its main focus was gratitude for the food that we were like able to afford to eat. Um, but other than that, we basically were like... You know, we were performative Christians, but functional atheists. We had Christmas and Easter and never went to church, but prayed every night. But really, we didn't talk very much about dogma, except that it was something that was, like, personal to each person. And um, that as you grow older, you sort of have to make up your mind about what you believe. And that resulted in me sort of being, for a long time, like, a pretty staunch atheist. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I grew up in a community with a lot of social inequity and it made me very angry and I didn't have an understanding of, or a belief that anyone could do anything about it. And it, you know, the, the God that I was talked to about by my grandmother shouldn't have let those things happen kind of thing. Right. And, um, and that kind of continued until three or four years ago, really. Right. Um, that kind of really staunch, um, you know, argumentative atheism, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like that atheism was a part of your identity in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Which is interesting because I've, um, I went to uh, the University of Toronto. I went to St. Michael's College, which is a Catholic institution. Right. Um, and I, as a young gay man who was an atheist, it seems like a very odd kind of <laughs> choice, right? Um, but essentially, I didn't know anything about the college system. And my brother lived there. And I thought I'd go. So I knew somebody and then formed like a really good friend network there. But yeah, it was. I was like, I was on the student union there. And I was like the non- Catholic voice on the student union, which maybe wasn't needed or asked for, but um, yeah, but I did. It became, and I think I became known a little bit for being, yeah, like not anti-religion, but like questioning why we have to do things the way that they say we do, even if it doesn't serve everybody that it should be serving. Yeah. Um, so in that, in that period of like your life as the staunch atheist, where did you find meaning? Um, I, I mean, a lot of it I've, I found in, in like in the bar. <laughs> um, I, I was a very heavy drinker then. And I, um, I used a lot of drugs recreationally. I smoked I and mean, I smoked cigarettes for 18 years. And, um, but yeah, I think a lot of it came to getting drunk enough. And you really have to think about, those bigger questions, right? Mm-hmm. If you're just having fun all the time. Um, I started a little bit of a shift kind of in third year academically when I started taking school a little more seriously and taking some sociology courses and learning more about like social constructs and social systems and how they're embedded into our society. But I did always find or hope to find meaning in theater, which is work that I did all throughout my undergraduate and teacher's college. And so use that as a way to try to show what could be maybe. Yeah. I, um, I actually reflect a lot of that or reflect that part about theater in my own life, that it was a place where I could, um, express things that I couldn't do in my everyday life or feel things in a way that I couldn't in my everyday life. Um, yeah. Do you have more you want to say about that? I think for sure. I mean, in a way it gives a sense of control, right? Especially if you're in, um, and acting or any kind of creative or directorial capacity where you can, you can identify something you want to explore and then look at, for me, it always, I always felt I had a sense of agency, right? I could have people look at things from different viewpoints. I had a friend that argued with me a lot when I, we worked on that company that had all of our proceeds donated to charity. Uh, and my friend would say, well, just give the money to charity. And I said, but then no one will see the show. He said, but what's, what's the difference? And I said, well, the difference is, you know, a hundred people might feel differently about something if they see the show, you know? And so, um, or one person might feel differently about something and maybe that was enough sometimes too. Right. So I think that, you know, there's a bit of a desire for me at least for control, but it was also about 
providing differing perspectives or, or challenging people's assumptions on what what is or what can be. Yeah, it sounds like from what you said, there was a lot of meaning for you in life through kind of exploring it is a broad term, but social justice in general, that that was a a big thing for you. Definitely. And what's really interesting about that is social justice like is, um, is subjective, right? I mean, morality is subjective. And so it's really interesting to, uh, you know, doing work in the small community I grew up in or Toronto or even like the suburbs where I work now. I mean, the morality between those three places that are only, hours apart, it can be very different. Right. Um, and so you, you can kind of learn, I always think you kind of learn a lot about the people you work with, but also like yourself and your morality based on like exploring work, right. That has social justice themes. Yeah. Um, so is that still important for you in the work that you do now? It is. Um, you know, as an educator, I, I feel I have to be careful with not indoctrinating students, right? With like, here, this, I'm telling you that this work is important. Right. Um, so what I've been doing, like, for example, right now I'm doing a social justice, we have a social justice unit in our grade 11 drama course. They do a one-eye play, but I give them a questionnaire right at the start of the semester. Like, what kind of issues are you interested in? what makes you comfortable, what makes you uncomfortable, what character would you not play? And then I pick shows and kind of cast around that. So it hopefully gives them a feeling of agency. I mean, we're really good at telling people what right and wrong is and not letting them decide for themselves kind of what, or or not letting them figure out for themselves, maybe where they stand on a social issue. So it's always interesting to see the responses, um, but it's hard not to like, I, I'm, I'm not the director, right? <laughs> like it's hard. It's hard to guide without forcing the hand a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But it is important to me. I think I've always thought theater has like a really important role and really has throughout history, right. Of reflecting society. And it's one of the things I love studying about dramatic literature, but is that we can learn so much about what a society was like by getting a glimpse into like the life of one family living in that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or what was important to people or what people felt was important to tell as a story. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so much of the time, the like playwrights were the edge pushers. Yeah, definitely. In their society too. So yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned it before, that your personal beliefs and your faith has mm. shifted in the past couple years. Can you tell a little bit more about the story of what has happened for you? Yeah, for sure. I um, I sort of, I talked about like using theater in some ways as like a means for control and or distraction maybe. And I talked about kind of using alcohol as a way to distract. To or, or to feel a sense of control. Um, I, I, I drank sort of increasingly more throughout my 20s and 30s um, until, you know, my early 30s, I realized that I had a pretty substantial problem and I was not able to, um, you know, drinking to feel a sense of control led to having like absolutely no control 
Hmm. Um, over alcohol or over my life or over my health or my mental health was uh, unraveling quite rapidly. And so I made the decision uh, that I needed to stop drinking and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and one of their, you know, one of their tenets, one of their steps is to believe in a power greater than yourself, um, which was like a very new thing for me, right? <laughs> like I'm me and I control what I do. Um, and so I think that there are so many ways to look at that. And a lot of people maybe look at that as like, you know, a God, God or a God or a Christian God, or, um, the program refers to it as like a God of your own understanding. And for me, all it was, was realizing that I was not in control of anything. I'm not in control of what's happening in the world around me. And I'm not in control of what's happening to me. And that can be a very like scary realization, but it was also kind of liberating because what it eventually resulted in, it took several years of like, you know, prayer and work um, and meditation was that my anxiety went down drastically Hmm. when I realized that I wasn't responsible for everything that was going to happen to me ever. Right. Um, And I'm not that I'm abdicating personal responsibility, but um, that I can control it in that it wasn't about the outcome being okay. It was about, learning how to be prepared um, for the outcome, regardless of what it is. So like, for example, when I was doing these lung tests for my, my allergies and I had smoked for 18 years, so they were also checking for, uh, for lung tumors. Right. Uh, and I was, you know, five years ago, I would have been literally shaking on the floor, terrified of just getting the test done. And I was like, well, okay, like that would be terrible, but I will work through, that you know um i guess to me that's like my faith it's like i know that whether or not everything's okay or whoever whatever standard okay is like i will be able to navigate it yeah you know one of the the beliefs that i have is that healing in any way i think is an act of faith you have to believe that change is possible absolutely and you have to believe that growth is possible and so what was the moment for you? How did you come to realize that you needed help? And then what, what, what drove you to believe that help was possible and choose the resource that you did? Um, essentially a really good friend of mine who lives in Ohio um, had been a few years sober around the time that I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, you know, texted her all the time about, Am I drinking too much? And I don't want to quit right now because I'm going on my honeymoon and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, um, and essentially she, I'm very eternally grateful, but she, she broke kind of the AA rule and said, you know, you're an alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, which we're not, you know, we're not supposed to tell other people. And I think that you're only, you're only going to get worse. Um, and so I listened because I knew she knew what she was talking about, because she had been in the same position so she actually looked up a meeting for me to go to the next morning. Uh, and I went and that was, that was it. That was like four years ago this week, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, but, uh, I, but, but getting there, I, I was, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I believed it was possible. I guess going and seeing that other people were doing it, um, made me, made me believe it was possible. And people that were, had been in various states of addiction, some that were deeper in their addiction than I was, were doing it and quite successfully. And, I just, um, I mean, for me, there shouldn't have been perhaps, but like for me, there is a, a humbling of like, well, if it's, you know, I'm not different enough to think it won't work for me. Mm. 
I mean, I was, but I was going to try it anyway. <laughs> um, and then I went like, and this sounds wild, but like I went a full week without a drink and I hadn't ever done that since I was a teenager. And I was so excited and I was like, it's, it's already starting to happen. I think like it's already happening. If I can do a week, I can do two weeks. And, and the, the program's kind of primary slogan is to live one day at a time, which I think is beautiful for a bunch of reasons. But I mean, I can just not drink today and I, then I don't have to think about tomorrow, but today I'm not going to drink. And so it was again, that letting go of the end result and living in like the process of doing it. I mean, there's no goal, right? It's like after 40 years, I'll start drinking, you know? So it's just like, I'm not going to drink today. And that's, that's kind of freeing for me. Yeah. It, it sounds like though, there was already something in you that was like questioning this. If you were checking in with your, friend and like asking those questions had that been going on for a while or yeah i mean it had been going on for about a year i think because uh you know a couple of like people in my life that were really important to me my best friend from high school my mother-in-law kind of you know suggested maybe that i was drinking too much and that there were options if you needed it and but i think what had happened uh, really was like i had tried to stop a few times and just absolutely was not able to uh, which I think is really interesting, uh, you know, because physically nothing was different. It was, it was having the, the support of a group of people, you know, that, that were also doing it, but also like bringing in that humility and that acknowledgement of something bigger than yourself rather than, than isolating about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, because not everyone might be familiar with the way the program works. Can you talk about the relationship that it has with your life now or how that, what that was like and then what it's like going forward? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I started the program, I went to meetings, uh, AAS meetings. Um, I mean, it's really lucky to live in Toronto. They have, they're probably six or seven meetings a day, seven days a week in Toronto. Um, a really active recovery community here. I probably went to three or four meetings a week. Um, and then we have literature you can read like about the steps and how the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous got sober themselves and like started helping other people. Um, most people recommend getting a sponsor, which is someone who's been sober for longer than you, um, to like answer your questions and help you out. Uh, and I did that. He's great. Um, still in touch with him. I kind of, uh, do a lot of the advocates for daily prayer and meditation and daily meditation was something I've been doing already, but prayer was very new to me, aside from as what I mentioned earlier, that kind of performative Christianity at the dinner table, right? right. Um, but like, like true, like true prayer uh, uh, was new to me, and I had to learn how to do it. But I think the biggest part was like, I had to decide what I was praying to mm-hmm. um, and was still bringing in a lot of those kind of anti-theistic attitudes into my recovery, which did not worked very well, but it also didn't last very long because I needed to like let go of that belief that I could handle everything and control everything. And so, um, you know, the, the program suggests if you have a really hard time with the concept of a higher power, that the program could be your higher power, right? It's something outside mm-hmm. of yourself that's helping you. And, um, so I did like that for a little while and it was super helpful. And then I started thinking about kind of what I believed in about the world and the universe. And I, I was always really interested in like creation stories of different cultures and different peoples. And, um, and I, I thought about the big bang theory and I'm like, that's sort of really just another creation 
story, right? And it's kind of an interesting. It just doesn't have a you know I don't know, a deity, maybe or a person attached to it. But then, so I started reading into that because I thought it was really interesting. And then I started reading about all the energy that was left over from the Big Bang Theory that they don't really know what happened to it, but they know it's here. And I was like, I think that's really beautiful that there's all this sort of universal energy around us all of the time that's maybe supporting us or influencing us in like gentle ways. And that kind of became my, my higher power. Like it's, it's here and it's shaping the way the world is. And it's kind of, that's sort of where I wound up with my, my belief system. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what your daily like meditation prayer Mm -hmm. looks like? Absolutely. Um, so kind of my meditation practice that pre-existed my recovery was focused on uh, like mindfulness and anxiety, mm. uh, which I still practice. Often that is one or two minutes in the morning while the coffee pot's filling up. I do like power poses and meditate in the kitchen, uh, which is just like the best way to start my morning. I can't even explain to you. And then the other one is a uh, end of the day. I get home, I do my workout. And I sit on my mat and I meditate for as long as I have. I usually I turn it over like, you know, well, whatever I have until I have to start dinner. But mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, ideal time is like 20 minutes for me, but it doesn't happen very often. And now, depending on my day, that's focused either on kind of my mindfulness and letting my day go, or it's focused more on a spiritual practice, um, like a loving kindness medication, meditation, which kind of comes out of Buddhism. Um and kind of like trying to feel a connection with my higher power. I like to have the windows open, even if it's winter time and just hear the wind or the birds or whatever, and, and get reminded that there's all this other stuff that is not me. That is beautiful. And that is there. Uh, and I'm allowed to just sit and listen to it for a while. If I want to, um, if I need a more, I, I guess my, my prayer practice is a, a nighttime ritual for me when I get um, like at bedtime. And it's sort of just a connection. I do a few things with that that'll be depending on the day I've had, but generally it makes up three modules. I, I express gratitude. I um, say prayers for people, like in just in a way that is not in a way that I'm trying to control outcomes, but that is like sending my loving kindness to them or, op- or just hoping the universe offers them whatever it is that they're needing. And then I do kind of a daily review or uh, what we sometimes call like in, in program, like an inventory, right? Like what went really well today and what that we would like to keep working on for tomorrow. And that's a big part of keeping my faith active is that like tomorrow can always be different and better and you can always heal and recover and grow. And that doesn't mean today's a write-off, but it means there's like, there's always opportunity for things to improve. Even if you had a great day, right? Yeah. That past performance doesn't predict future outcomes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been, that's been huge for me. And like, I usually now it's like a lullaby for me. Like I fall asleep right while I'm finishing up kind of thing. It's lovely. It's like the best way to go to bed for me anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious about how the stuff that you've been practicing in your own life has translated into your work. You've talked a bit about your work as a teacher, but you're also, you've become a life coach and you yeah, are a life coach. For sure. So 
how has your process of recovery and your own sort of spiritual growth impacted both those areas of your work? I guess the primary way with my coaching work, again, I try to have clients like live in the process rather than the product or the result, right? Whether it's, I mean, I don't, I don't personally coach on weight loss, but I mean, if you were coaching on weight loss, it's like, well, if you're going to be only happy if you lose 40 pounds and it's going to take two months to lose 40 pounds, you're going to be miserable for two months. And like, that doesn't sound great, right? <laughs> it doesn't sound like good coaching. Um, so I, I try to focus on like living in the process of what you're doing. Right. So one of my authors is a, a writer, a novelist who's, you know, turning her novella into a novel and very focused on getting the novel published and getting it done. And I said, okay, but like, but are you enjoying writing your book? Right. Like, mm-hmm. no, I want to get it done. I'm like, well, let's find ways to make you enjoy it. And so for me, it's sort of the correlation to like, letting go of the control or like letting go of what is going to happen later and finding a way to be like, what am I doing now? And can I be at peace with it? And can I like it? Yeah. And has, has that changed the way you teach? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. It happens so fast. I guess I would say more, it changed the way I try to shape my students' perceptions towards work. Hmm. Right. Especially in the drama room right? Where they're so, again, they're very product oriented. Well, when's our final performance? Well, what's this up? You know, when do we have to have our lines memorized? And when I said, well, like, we're just going to try an activity that's like based on your script today and like, see what we find from that. And so it's hard to get school is still very much and it's shifting, but slowly, but like it is a, it is a product or outcome oriented organization, right? So it is hard often to shift students who've grown up in that. I mean, if you told me when I was 16 and I was as bookish as I talked about before, they're like, don't worry about the end product. We're going to like explore something today. I'd be like, well, but how is it going to help me with my end product? Right. So I get it. So anyway, it, it's helped kind of in the approach or trying to like open the students' approaches to things a little bit. Um, and that's changing too, kind of that's sort of trickling up from elementary and middle school because we're starting now that more like exploratory learning. Uh, in kindergarten. And so that's kind of phasing up, which is nice, but it's, um, it can be a tough sell, but yeah, I definitely, definitely the coaching influence that I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I want to ask you about doubt oh, okay. because, you know, as we said at the top, we're living in this time that feels a bit uncertain. I think for a lot of people, um, we don't know what our immediate future even holds right yeah. now. <laughs> um, but I also think it's something that people generally struggle with. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that our generation has a less certain future than I think they feel like their parents did. And it also strikes me that you're having to deal with this when you deal with your clients and your life coaching. And when you talk to like students as well is probably doubt is a really present thing for them. So how do you manage doubt personally? And then how have you, how do you talk about it with people that you come in contact with through your work? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, with respect to myself, I'm a, I'm like a planner. I'm a, I'm a plan A, B, C, D, E, F kind of person. So uh, when in doubt, make a, make a backup plan that you can be okay with. Um, I also try for myself and for others to look at like, what is a situation that you can be okay with? Like, even if it's not, what you dreamed of or what you imagined, like what, what would you be okay with? So for example, I have students who, Oh, I want to be an actor, but I 
what if, what if I don't make it? And I said, well, what does making it mean to you as an actor in Toronto? Right. Um, is it, uh, getting a show a month, every month for your whole career? No, you probably won't make it. Right. Is it living comfortably or more than comfortably doing a combination of like reading for auditions, teaching workshops in schools, acting in three or four shows a year, then yeah, you can make it. But it's what, what is a situation that you can be comfortable in? Um, I, I find it's a way to kind of mitigate doubt a little bit with respect to future choices. I mean, I think also our, you know, our generation and, and younger are kind of aware that the, the salaries they will need to maintain a lower standard of living than our generation has right now are astronomical probably, and probably won't be getting paid. Like they probably won't be making those things. You know, I'm looking, a former student of mine is doing his work in his training as a social worker right now. And his starting salaries, he's looking at are like $28,000 a year. Well, he can't afford the apartment he's renting now as a student on $28,000 a year kind of thing. Right. So there's a lot of, I think frustration and uncertainty, but yeah, I always try to say, well, what's the situation that you could be, confident with or comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really important because I think, um, I think sometimes people set goals and then feel really, uh, terrible when they don't achieve them. But some of what you're offering is about shifting the goals to meet the time or meet where you are. Is that fair? I think so too. And absolutely. Or, and, and being, um, Realistic about goals, not necessarily in terms of like, you can't do that. You don't have the ability, but that like things might not look like that in society anymore by the time you're doing it. So like, you know, students who are going to university, let's say next year and they want to do, they, a a lot of my students go into life sciences because they want to be doctors. And I said, okay, but like you're assuming life sciences will still qualify you for med school in four years or whatever, you know, I don't know. Or what if you don't get into med school? (laughs) Like, um, so I, I talked to one student, very high achiever. I'm going to do life sciences and then I'm going to med school. I said, good for you. But like med school is not a sure thing. What, like, what are you going to do with the life side degree if you don't get into med school? She's like, oh, I'm going to do a nursing degree and then apply to med school. And I'm like, there you go. Right. Like you can do something with that degree that is relevant to what you are passionate about, even if your primary goal has to be altered or is different or I don't know. And not that she can probably be a doctor. She's very bright, but things happen, right? You know? Yeah. You're almost talking about adaptability, adapting to change, which I think is a, a thing that we are naturally capable of doing as humans, but we fear incredibly absolutely (laughs) as well. You've meant you've talked about it about before, but do you have anything more to say about your personal process of change and growth or or how you've supported people through big changes? Personally, I mean, I understand why people are, are kind of have an aversion to change. It is very challenging. You know, my last four years in recovery have been the hardest four years of my life, I think. Um, I think that does two things for me. I think it makes me good at supporting people through change, but it makes me really impatient as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, um, but I mean, the, yeah, the, the change aversion is very challenging and we're seeing a lot of it right now. I mean, look what's happening in the grocery stores just with the possibility that things might change on Monday kind of thing. Right. Um, and I, mm-hmm. 
I, I think that change is actually very difficult. And when you look at some of the research on synapses and neuroplasticity in the brain, like it's possible, but it's hard and it takes time. And it is quite physically often like uncomfortable um, as like the changes are also happening kind of physiologically. Right. Um, I think the best thing anyone ever did for me was my sponsor. And it was three weeks into my sobriety. And he sent me to this website that was, I think it was a Mayo clinic actually. And it was like the physiology of alcohol withdrawal. And he's like, you know, you need to be armed. You need to know what's going to happen in your body and your brain as you change. Right. Um, and I think that's true of like any change, like not just like of, um, of an addiction, but also changing jobs. Right. I mean, there's a lot of stress management that has to happen with that, but like, and I'm rambling maybe, but it has to do too with knowing your body, right? Because stress manifests itself differently in different bodies. You know, my, my husband and I have very different manifestations of stress, right? And so it's not a one size fits all. Um, and so it really is like you can support people through stress, but you have to have, be able to have a dialogue about stress. And I find a lot of people don't like to talk about stress. Like they like to say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm stressed. But they've never taken the time to be like, well, what does that feel like for you? Or what does that mean for you? And then how can you mitigate it? Because I get sometimes now I get stressed and I eat a bag of like cookies or something. And then I feel terrible. And then I am stressed because I like our coping mechanisms aren't always they, they exacerbate our problems, right? So Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you strike on something there that sitting with things that are uncomfortable yeah. are very difficult is very difficult. Um, and being mindful that change is a, it has to happen on all levels of your being. And I think you pointing out the fact that it is a physiological process as well is really important. Yeah. Um, and that that's okay if your body shifts and changes at the same time as you go through that transformation. Yeah. That sitting with uncomfortable things is, is daunting, I think. And I mean, there are a whole practices and books on it and you know tara brock a psychologist has a book called true refuge that's like about like how can you work through being mentally or physically or emotionally uncomfortable and like the first part of that is just sitting with it and figuring out where it is but it's it's helped me a lot but it's awful work like it's hard work right you know and it can be hard to find the motivation to like it's a lot easier to eat the bag of cookies right Right. (laughs) but um And the other thing too is, you know, a lot of it is like, well, what if you can't sit with that? You know, if you're dealing with addiction or trauma, I mean, how do you, how to know when you need outside help too, right? Yeah. Yeah. But to know as well that there is that help. Absolutely. I, I heard one, someone say like, there is no human emotion or experience that you can have that nobody else has had. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, or throughout history, like yeah. none of them are unique. Yeah. That's humility so. right there. <laughs> yeah. Fine. There's always someone, someone you can reach out yeah. to for support. Absolutely. For sure. And I think too, we are very lucky going back to our digital communication, right? I mean, they're like, apps for counseling now and like you can get like texting support if you need to be receiving it privately for example or you're not able to leave the house right you can you don't have to talk to anyone you can get connected to a counselor via text right which is yeah which is good yeah Yeah. so before i move on to my last questions i just want to offer you space 
Is there anything else you want to say? Anything that we didn't cover or anything that has kind of come up for you as we've been talking? Uh, I feel like we didn't talk about prayer very much. I just wanted to like talk about how into it I am after being such a hardcore atheist for so long. <laughs> yeah, I, for sure. I can't believe how beneficial it's been, like what a change it's made in my life. And I think it, I mean, to me, even, even if you are atheistic or agnostic, I mean, sometimes just the act of like saying things out loud or, or internally even is, I mean, meditative at least, but that's prayer. You know, I mean, it can be so helpful, you know, scientifically again, sometimes your brain needs to hear things being said. And sometimes those things are gratitude. And sometimes those things are like acknowledgements of what's going well. And I mean, if you're even taking a minute or two a day to say things like that out loud is so helpful. Yeah, I just, yeah. I love that they say that, uh, there's a saying like, the only people that don't espouse the benefits of prayer are the people that don't pray. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've always found that really interesting. <laughs> and you, you've talked a bit about like how what you pray to can be expansive. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be a specific definition. Could you say a little bit more about that? One of the best things I heard in program, because I heard a lot of good vo- advice in AA, someone told me was that if your higher power isn't big enough, just make it bigger because it's yours and it can be as big as you want it to be. But I mean, you don't need to think about it as a, as a higher power necessarily. Right. I mean, you can be thankful for, I don't know. I mean, every, everything, you know, that the, sometimes the sun is my higher power, you know, like it's just so I'm so grateful for warm sun in the springtime. Right. Like it's, and it doesn't have to be the same thing every time, but I think it's, again, there's so many benefits to acknowledging allowed good things or talking aloud challenges. Sometimes I'll like be having a really hard struggle with, I don't know, like a conflict at work or with a friend. And I, I just kind of talk it out aloud. This isn't even during prayer. Just like, while well, I'm in the shower or whatever, like talk it out out loud. And I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. They're probably feeling this way. Or like, I just remember that this is happening in their life. And it's just like, you're giving your, brain the moment to focus on things that we don't usually afford ourselves the time to focus on right i mean where you almost always so many of us are almost always consuming some form of distraction uh whether it's audio or visual right and that it's i find it quite um a luxury actually to have the few minutes a day to do that to not have any anything on and just talk or think things out yeah that's so helpful so important. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask you yeah. this question that I've asked all the people that I have interviewed, and it's about the definition of faith. Mm-hmm. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. It defines it as one, an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself. And three, something you believe in or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm. And so I want to put each of those parts of the definition to you as questions. Wow. So for you... What do you feel a duty or allegiance to in life? Wow. 
I mean, I think in a fundamental way, like my loved ones, my friends, my family, um, I think one though really is I've always felt an allegiance to try to help people. Like I mentioned earlier is I've had a, a privileged upbringing and life and I'm fortunate to be in a good situation. And like, I really do think that it is our duty to help people when we can. And I feel quite bound to that. Um, and that can be anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big monumental thing or volunteering or anything, but it can be holding the door or smiling and saying hello to a coworker you don't even know in the hallway or like all of those things make, I think, add net value, net worth to our world, right? And they don't happen very often. And I, do, I don't know why, because they're easy. But I think like my allegiance is to like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I know we've kind of discussed this already, but what do you put your belief or trust in that is greater than yourself? Yeah, just sort of the the universe, right? Um, the energy that exists in the universe, it's keep, keeping us revolving, <laughs> you know, like keeping the days happening and the birds hatching and um, the wind blowing. Um, yeah, it's just so, it's so good for me personally, anyway, to remember that like all this stuff that's happening that has nothing to do with me, it goes back to what you were saying. There isn't anything that's happened to you that hasn't, you know, been experienced by somebody that's, that's humbling in a way, right? Like it's so nice. Even if, even if they're suffering, you know, there's no, there's no isolation, right? The world will keep going and things will keep moving. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I, I do believe that there is something at everyone's core that they feel to be true. Yeah, I agree. It's, that's a, it's a super hard question though. What do I feel <laughs> or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? I truly and honestly believe that there are more good people in this world than we give credit for or that we believe or that we acknowledge the brain is so i mine is anyway but many of our brains are so programmed to focus on negativity as like a leftover survival or a coping mechanism from when we had to be on high alert all the time but i think that it's easy to remember or easy to forget that like there are a lot of truly good people yeah you know yeah it's so important yeah <laughs> So we've talked a lot about spiritual practices mm -hmm. over the course of our discussion. Um, is there a specific one that you want to highlight or talk about? I thought I would talk through like in a little more detail, my nightly prayer practice. It's in three pretty like specific steps. So it's really super easy to adopt and it doesn't take very long. I've always found it like a great way to get end the day. It was sort of an amalgamation of a few different practices from a few different places. So, um, you know, when I, when I got sober, I had a lot of mental health issues kick in or, you know, or manifest and they weren't being self-medicated anymore. And so I was, you know, seeing a psychologist and doing some CBT and dialectical behavioral therapy. And so look, talked a lot about like gratitude lists and gratitude journaling. Um, and then one is sort of like a, an AA tool. It's like a check-in in daily inventory about like what we were how did your day go? You know? And, uh, the third one, I just was sort of like that Buddhist loving kindness thing. Like I want to send some, Bob, I know this person's had a hard day. So 
I just kind of like amalgamated them into a nightly practice that I, I like for me anyway, is like very comprehensive in terms of like going through my day, but it's super quick. Um, yeah. I don't write it down. I say it aloud. Some people, when I started doing it, I wrote it down, uh, like in a journal beside my bed, but I found I'm, I'm kind of doing it every day for several years. So I'm, I'm doing it a louder in my head. But, um, when I started, I wrote it down because if I needed to during the day, I could go back and like, look at those gratitude things again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked a little bit about this already, but how has it helped you? What does it mean to you? I think the gratitude is important because even if, or when I was sort of like in the throes of depression or, you know, it felt like my life got a lot harder after I quit drinking in some ways, it still forced me to identify like process again, right? Like what's, what's actually still going well, even though all this stuff is hard and I don't know what the end is going to look like. Right. And because the thing about addiction recovery is you never know what the end is going to look like, because if I drink when I'm 50, then I'm back in my illness, you know? So, um, it helped me kind of stay grounded in, in the process rather than worrying about what the rest of my sobriety would look like or wouldn't look like or whatever. And that was really helpful. And, uh, and just getting the loving kindness out of people helped me stop thinking about myself. Like addiction is, uh, you know, a lot of self-centered behavior when you're active in addiction, but, but by necessity and recovery, a lot of need to focus on yourself as well. So it helped me to get that focus away from me for a few minutes a day, at least. Yeah. yeah. And then how does it help you now? Cause you've continued it. Um, I think it's just so it's become so cyclical in terms of being perpetually self-fulfilling. Like it's, um, it's more like I, I notice it if I don't do it, but a lot of the same things, I mean, we say in recovery, like you quit using your substance, but your behaviors don't just go away after that. Right. So I still have a tendency maybe to be focused on me instead of others or to not acknowledge my part in things and how I could have done things differently the next day. Um, it's a really good, just like keep me on track daily tune up. And I mean, gratitude's important for me too. I have like the propensity, I have a negative brain, so it's pretty good for me to acknowledge a few items every day that I'm grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And you can find James Hampton's spiritual practice, Gratitude Check-In, in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com, where you can listen to him guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly, and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, I'll be talking to Leah Nielsen about how a wakeboarding accident that left her with a traumatic brain injury upended her life and made her lean on her faith more than ever. So until then, holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.